your host, Lillian Yang. And I'm your host, Fakri Shafai. And you are listening to Food Nonfiction. Last week, we started the Save the Salmon conversation. And now you're going to hear how it's all related to the salmon you eat. Save the salmon? What is this about saving the salmon? If you're like me, you hear stories about tuna or salmon going extinct or being endangered, and you wonder how it's then possible for you to go to any sushi restaurant and order a nine-piece sushi sashimi for $11. So you put it out of your mind. The conclusion is they can't be in that much trouble if you can get them everywhere, and for cheap. Yeah, they don't seem like they need saving. They're super easy to buy. They're everywhere in every grocery store and sushi restaurant. What is this disconnect between what we hear from environmentalists and what we experience as consumers? One of the things that's hard for people to understand that salmon can be an endangered species when you can buy them at the supermarket, it's important to understand the difference between farmed salmon and wild salmon. So Dana is saying that wild salmon of certain species are at risk. I think we assume there are plenty of salmon because salmon of certain species from certain regions are okay. But we should be worried because salmon of certain species from certain regions are not okay. The big problem is that salmon from stream A will only ever spawn in stream A. So if stream A is not available anymore, then all the salmon from that stream will not be able to reproduce. So a coho salmon going extinct in one stream means that no coho will ever go back there. At least not without lots of water and some help from humans. At least half of the salmon you're buying is farmed. If you've eaten as much sashimi as I have, then you'll have noticed that the sashimi looks very different at different places. Sometimes you get very light pink slices with thick ribbons of white fat running through them. Sometimes there are no ribbons of white fat and the fish just looks artificially red. Guess which one is the farmed salmon? The farmed salmon has those characteristic thick ribbons of white fat running through them. We'll post pictures. This is because wild salmon do a lot more swimming than farmed ones. So of course they don't develop those thick ribbons of fat running through their meat. Wild salmon have vibrant colors, deep reds and bright pinks. But stick to looking for thick ribbons of fat because farmed salmon is often dyed to look more pink. Also, wild salmon is often a healthier choice than farmed. While farmed salmon have more fat because they don't swim as much, it is not more of the good omega-3 fatty acids that you want. Today, they have about as much of the good fats as wild salmon do, but with lower percentages of protein. So what's the issue with farmed salmon? The issue is how they're raised. The fish become diseased more easily. They're raised really close together, so it's easier for diseases and parasites to spread throughout the group. There's not enough genetic diversity, so if a parasite or virus can infect one salmon, it can infect them all because they're all so genetically similar. So lots of antibiotics are used to stop the fish from getting sick. Lastly, some farms do not manage water and waste very well, so they can cause more pollution. One of the things that's important to understand is that farmed salmon has a lot of hidden costs that the environment is really bearing. There's a major risk of spreading parasites and toxins in surrounding water. Farmed salmon require a lot of water to raise, 
and a small salmon farm actually produces more fecal matter than a small city. Farm salmon escapement also affects wild salmon populations. That was Dana Stoltzman, the executive director of the Salmonoid Restoration Federation. So should you be concerned? Yes. But what's the other side of the story? Not all farmed seafood is that bad. It can actually be a sustainable, low-cost alternative. It is possible to farm salmon responsibly. Let us explain. Dr. David Suzuki. I'm sure you've heard of him, the famous academic and environmental activist. Is researching how to farm salmon without the problems of disease and pollution. He's actually working closely with some First Nations groups on the islands off the BC coast to put in closed tank systems for rearing salmon. And what we mean by closed tank is that the salmon live their entire life cycle within the tank. This way of farming fish is considered healthier than most other forms of farming. The fish can't get out and spread parasites. Marine mammals aren't getting killed when they try to feed off the farm fish by getting caught in the nets. And they aren't producing a bunch of pollution. In fact, some of them are able to recycle water with a 99% reclamation rate. So, if you imagine a city where all the waste is just dumped around the city and everyone is inbred, That's how it is with the bad way of farming fish. Also, when some of these diseased fish escape from this horrible enclosure, they spread their diseases. Now, if you imagine a city where the waste is managed properly and there is far less disease, that's how it is with the good way of farming. Also, it's closed tank, so it's contained, so you don't get the inbred escapees spreading trouble. We say good farming with a huge grain of salt because closed tank systems have their own set of issues, taking up lots of land and energy. So what we're saying is that It's promising as an industry solution to a growing population with an appetite for salmon. A lot of people want to eat salmon, so the fish industry is going to keep up with that demand, whether they take it from the ocean or from farming. Check our show notes for a link to Dr. Suzuki's article on this topic. There's an awesome resource called Sea Choice that can help you make healthier decisions when purchasing seafood. So just go to seachoice.org for that. Another fantastic resource is the Monterey Bay Aquarium's website and iPhone app. It is constantly updated with the latest information to help you make the best choices for wild and farmed seafood. So that's at seafoodwatch.org. Our show notes have links in case you forget. So if done properly, farming salmon is not all bad. It produces less waste and means that we don't put as much of a dent in the wild salmon population. Done improperly and without regulations, however, farmed salmon can be bad for environment and consumers alike. Okay, so you're getting wild and farmed salmon everywhere, blinding you from the fact that some wild populations are struggling, especially those from California. But now you know that wild salmon populations are struggling because you've listened to this podcast. So you want to know what's happening to the wild salmon. Or maybe you don't care, but you're currently driving, cooking, cleaning, walking, or running, so you're just going to keep listening. So, 
What's happening to the wild salmon? Well, it's complicated. There are lots of factors, but we'll break them down for you here. One, there's the issue of climate change and drought. Remember how we talked about this last episode? Less water due to drought makes it hard for fish to travel between streams and the ocean. Warmer water temperatures mean eggs don't hatch. Less wind off the coast means less upwelling of nutrients for young salmon once they get to the ocean. Upwelling is something that creates an abundance of food for fish. When juveniles hit the ocean, if there isn't much upwelling, then the food availability is limited and that brood year uh, may suffer. That's Carrie Burr, a biologist working with the Fishery Foundation of California. The second issue is the issue of farming and ranching. Water taken for crops during summer months mean many young salmon are getting stranded in low water. Waste from fertilizers, pesticides, and dirt pollutes streams. That pollution makes the water murky and prevents young salmon from getting enough oxygen from the water. It also makes it harder for them to find insects to eat. For an agricultural powerhouse like California, there's always this balancing act between taking care of the environment and needing to grow food. But it's possible for farmers and environmentalists to work together. I have had the pleasure to know people who run farms and ranches. In my experience, many are very concerned about the environment and passionate about conservation. All it takes is a little communication from both groups to better meet their needs. Luckily, Laurel Marcus of Fish Friendly Farming is working to bridge that gap. We have about a thousand different farmers that we work with. We also work with ranchers. In most of the streams in um, the Bay Area and the Russian River, the primary pollutant is fine sediment, dirt, basically. And dirt comes from every action that human beings carry out, from road building to house building to farming to ranching. One of the focuses our organization takes is to work with large landowners to try to figure out where on their property they might be producing fine sediment and what practices they need to take to reduce it. Third is the issue of dams. The dams on the Klamath River have a huge impact on salmon. Storing water for human use produces the double whammy of less water flowing and less access to streams because we store water by building dams. Efforts have been made to reduce this loss, though. When levels get too low, the dams do release some water to the streams. There are also salmon ladders that allow adult salmon to jump up the side of a dam when they return to spawn. Salmon ladders don't solve all the problems that a dam can cause, though. There are efforts in some areas to have them torn down entirely. Scott Greason, executive director of the Friends of the Eel River, is trying to remove two dams and a diversion tunnel that are hurting salmon recovery in his area. We'll hear more from him later. Fourth is the issue of mining. This has the same problem as with farming and ranching. The water gets polluted with dirt and other waste. The salmon can't get enough food or oxygen. The Department of Conservation regulates mining and geology in California to try and reduce the impact of mining on the environment. See our show notes for more details about the 1975 Act and all it protects from mining operations. The fifth and final point is 
for me, the most surprising. How is it that salmon in California are being impacted by marijuana? When many people think of weed, images of hippies, bongs, and smoke jump to mind. It seems like quite a stretch that something like marijuana could be hurting salmon populations. But in one part of California, that is exactly what is happening. For those of you who are not hip with the weed culture in California, there is a section above San Francisco known as the Emerald Triangle, and it includes Humboldt, Mendocino, and Trinity Counties. This region grows lots of weed and is the biggest producer in all of the United States. Side note, marijuana is California's number one cash crop and brings in more than $14 billion a year. The number of large-scale grow operations really increased in 1996 when the state voted to allow medical marijuana. The problem with this is that since there is still a largely illegal market, there are not any real regulations that these pot growers need to follow. So right now, there are all these water usage regulations that apply to everyone, but that are not being enforced for weed growers. Basically, the federal laws don't recognize them as legitimate farmers, so they don't have to follow federal environmental regulations. Scott Grecian of Friends of the Eel River explains. Well, this is where we get into the really complicated and extremely interesting topic of the marijuana industry's impacts on salmon, especially in the South Fork of the Eel River, which is our most populated and best-known chunk of the watershed. Um, The South Fork also happens to be the epicenter of the Emerald Triangle, uh, America's um, homegrown marijuana boom region. And we've been booming especially hard Uh, since 1996, when California voters passed a a ballot initiative that basically provides some legal protection for people who can claim to be growing marijuana for medical purposes. Um, Under the uncertainty created by that law, we've seen a very, very dramatic increase in large-scale commercial marijuana growing in the South Fork of the Eel. And just in the last few years, with the advent of the very serious drought that I'm sure all of your listeners have heard about, um, we've seen a real collision between the decreased carrying capacity of our watersheds in terms of just water and the increased demands from a completely unregulated marijuana industry. Um, So when you ask about how regulations are helping and maybe not helping um, salmon protections, the biggest thing I have to report is that in the absence of any effective regulations, um, the weed industry is really taking a giant bite out of salmon um, viability and our hopes for for salmon recovery. In fact, uh, one of the species we're most concerned about, coho salmon or silver salmon, are now facing extinction as a result of the combination of drought and marijuana-related water diversions in the South Fork Eel. And that's, that's a very, very um, big change just in the last decade, and it's, it's terrible news for the species across the region. We had hoped that the South Fork was going to be the seedbed of coho recovery, not the place where our hopes went to die. 
So what sort of changes would you ask marijuana farmers to make to help salmon recovery? What we've been asking growers to do for years now, and what many people have done, is make sure that they're storing all their water when we have rain um, in the winter. And even though we have a serious drought, we're still getting some rain here in the winter. Um, and it's entirely possible for people to store all the rain they need for a reasonably scaled grow operation. With all these different players, it's easy to see how some voices might be drowned out in this argument. Unfortunately, many Native American tribes feel that their perspective is being ignored and silenced. Good morning. My name is Ron Reed. I'm a Cudic tribal member. I'm a traditional dip net fisherman at Ishpishi Falls. My Cudic name is Mkaka. My village I come from is Tiyukutika, and I am honored to be able to talk about salmon. Pre-contact, there was over a million returning spawners to the Klamath River. Now there's less than 5% of that total. Tell me about the importance of salmon to the Cudic people. The importance of salmon to the Cudic people is that it's the lifeblood of our system. It's the backbone of our livelihood. Our ceremonies are based on the salmon runs on the Klamath River. And the name of our ceremonies, the World Renewal Ceremonies, is Pikiawish. Pikiawish translated to English is Fix the World. So the kind of people are the Fix the World people. Watching life slowly put out this fire in our hearts. We've got to escape. Mm, we've got to get free. I come from a traditional family. Uh, my great grandmother was an Indian doctor, a renowned Indian doctor on the Klamath River. And my great grandfather's family um, were the medicine people, medicine men of the ceremonies. So that combination made us a very traditional family, like I said. When I was young, my first memories involved the ceremonies, the world renewal ceremonies, dancing the ceremonies. Soon I was able to walk down Ishpishi Falls, which is our, our fishery, our only fishery now. Some of my first memories are down there packing fish out. Back in the day, we were done fishing by Labor Day. All my family and all the people had enough salmon. That's Ron Reed of the Kadok tribe. Along the California coast, there are three main tribes that have been affected by the loss of salmon. The Salt Blog from NPR's Science Desk did a piece which talked about how the drought and the reduced salmon numbers impact the local tribes. We wanted to share a powerful quote included from a tribesman named Chuk Chuk Hillman. 
It's not our fault they have orchards to water in the desert, and it's not the fish's fault either. Amazing. There's this saying attributed to John Muir that when you pull on anything, you find it any one thing, you find it hitched to the rest of the universe. I think that's really true with salmon. So next time you go to the grocery store and you're about to buy a salmon filet for your family's dinner, just remember that the salmon you're buying involves a lot of people and a lot of lives. There's a changing narrative behind the farm salmon and the researchers, like David Suzuki, trying to do it in a better way. If you're buying farm salmon, you can check the Seafood Watch app to find a brand that uses closed system tanks. These fish are less drugged and sickly, a little more appealing for your family. The Seafood Watch app uses a color system, with green being the best choices, yellow meaning good alternatives, and red meaning to avoid. And there's a story behind the wild salmon, with the farmers, the miners, the coastal Native Americans, and environmentalists, all who have interest in the fish and the water it depends on. Hey, food buffs, we hope you learned a lot, as usual. This topic means a lot to me, and I hope that it gave you food for thought. Be sure to subscribe, and if you have time, please leave us a review on iTunes. Listen in next week. 